I've made it to old age. I'm lucky. I can remember being at Normandy. It's just one freaking battlefield, cemetery after another. There's thousands. Never made it to old age. I'm Deborah Jarvis, and you're listening to The Final Say, conversations with people facing death. This is the podcast where you can get comfortable talking about death and learn some things about life from people who are dying. In this episode, I'm talking with Dawn Mallett, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about a year before this interview. I knew Dawn and his wife, Brenda, aka Magoo, because we attend the same church. They were always super friendly, but I didn't know them well, and by that I mean that I'd never broken bread with them. You know, I never had a meal. Did you ever meet people you know you could be really good friends with, but you know, somehow you don't make the time, and so it just never happens? Don and Brenda were those kind of people. But in any case, they welcomed me to their home on a beautiful summer day, and Brenda was out working in their garden as I drove up. Hey, how are you? I'm okay. I got the start of a cold. Oh, boo. So I'm, you know, putting Zycam in and all kinds of things, yeah. Glad you could come. We're in the midst of just finishing up lots of things. So Look, at, I just have to gaze upon your garden. It's so gorgeous. Well, thank you. It's just a feast for the eyes. Yeah. Well, the Kirkosmia is just blooming, which is just one of the best. Oh, that's exciting. Happen. Yeah, it is. It's Look at your like, geraniums. Wow, wow, wow. wow. Oh, yeah. Hey! How are you? Hi! Good to see you. Oh, good I, to see you. I, I, will you have some coffee? I'll make some more. Not that it makes any difference because I'm going to have some anyway. Oh, okay. okay. If you're going to have some. I ran out of coffee, so I'll be right back. I okay. never turned down a cup of coffee. In my neighborhood where I grew up, if you didn't offer coffee, it was because you didn't like the person visiting. And refusing a cup of coffee, that was like a slap in the face. So I just never turn one down. Don had pancreatic cancer. In October, he wasn't feeling great. In November, he lost 20 pounds. Well, I went in to see my doctor. I get an exam every year. Everything's been fine. He said, let's do a blood test. So they did a blood test. And this would have been early December. He says, you're anemic. This makes no sense at all. So they did a CAT scan. Now, guess what? They showed a mass. That's all I could see. So then they went to the next level, CAT scan with contrast, said the markers are, I knew it was pancreatic cancer. This would have been probably early December. And then they immediately did uh, a biopsy, found a mass on the pancreas, and the mass had found its way into the posterior wall of the stomach. And the spleen was evidently a mess. Wow. At the time, and I think they were surprised, they said, you know, this is not my first journey with pancreatic cancer. I understand it. One of my closest friends, when I was served with him in the Navy overseas, um, dear friend, um, died of pancreatic cancer. Oh. And I did eulogy. He was in Chicago. So I am somewhat familiar with this. And I think I understand the journey. Right. I said, let's be aggressive on this. So tell me, what was your first 
thought when they said there's a mass and it's pancreatic, especially in light of the fact that you've had experience with somebody dying of pancreatic cancer. So what was your first thought? Take that estate plan that I was going to work on since 2002 and get your ass in gear and get it f done. And we have done that. Reprioritize everything. Try as best you can to bring the family along. And uh, that has been the one part of this journey that has been difficult for me. Uh, we're getting there. That's been a journey. But it was more reprioritizing. So I want to just back up when you say bring them along. It, what's been hard for them? Is it that they're in denial about it or? I think, and this is partially my fault, when I use the word pancreatic cancer, they immediately Google it and they see the statistics and they see, you know, this is, this is and especially mine, and it's, it's over a pound. Um, so they, um, they were frightened of losing their dad. Could they, could they actually say that to you, Don? Like, we're afraid you're gonna die. They've never said that. First thing I did was stupid. I called my son in he's, his office in New York City. They live in Connecticut. And uh, I called him out of a meeting that he was involved with. He was running it. And I told him that there has been a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Well, he broke down right there on the phone. And here I, I've got to talk him off the ledge. He's got a meeting. He's got so we we that was a false start on my part. I'm very careful in talking to them, to basically be clear that I am being aggressive. I am absolutely committed, but I think I know how this thing's going to end. My job and this journey is basically to get as much quality time as I can to interact with all of you, you know, that kind of a thing. It the journey with the boys. Uh, has been a difficult one for me. To make. Yeah, this is one of the things that makes communication with family really difficult when you have serious health issues because you really care about them and their feelings and you don't want to upset them. And this is why people love talking to chaplains and social workers because you don't have to protect us. You can be honest and talk about how you're feeling and what's happening with your health. So this is always kind of tricky. So tell me about the, the high points of your life. What's given you the greatest joy? Magoo, my sons, there are a lot of high points. Uh, and I can't prioritize them. I would say, you know, the, the, my family, birth of my kids, that kind of thing. But my Navy career, my legal career, some people would say, how the hell can you be a divorce attorney for 50 years? And find, but uh, I think I helped a lot of people through a very difficult time. I think I understood the dynamics of it beyond just the, the, the legal aspects of it. And then the involvement, the engagement that I've had over the years, whether it's with a lot of different not-for-profits, uh, my church, which is very important to me, you know, and just the relationships and just the daily interaction with people I enjoy. There's a lot of serendipities in my life. 
I'm colorblind, red and green. So your question is, so how the hell could you be an officer in the United States Navy if you were colorblind? Well, where there's a will, there's a way, because I had a draft board in Indiana. That's where I'm from. And the draft board was on my case. You, you can finish law school. You have one opportunity, one opportunity to take the bar. And uh, that's it. Well, I took that opportunity, passed the bar. And they said, but this time, your physical will be at Sandpoint Naval Air Station, which was still operational. So at the designated time, I go out to, to the dispensary. And I showed up there at 4 o'clock, 1,600 hours for you people. And, and there was a corpsman there, and he said, sir, we knock off at 1,615. I said, well, I was supposed to be here at 1,600 hours. And he said, well, I'm supposed to give you eye tests. And I said, I'm colorblind. And he said, sir, that's my call. That's not your call. Well, I took care of the fraudulent enlistment because I told him I made a full disclosure. And they give you the Farnsworth Lantern Test, which is it's a beam of light. It, it's white, green, and red. I said, okay. But I'm telling you, I've been tested books, Farnsworth Lantern Test. I said, I've told you, that's my call. And he's looking at his watch. He wants to get out of there. So instead of waiting for the guy that was in the chair to get out so that I could sit in the chair. He said, stand behind that guy. Well, the guy that was in the chair was not colorblind, obviously. So my responses were just a millisecond or longer than the, the person. So he said, red, red, and I said, red, red. And he said, and the, <laughs> the corpsman says, sir, I guess you're wrong. And I guess all these other people that test you were wrong. So I was in Office of Indoctrination School. Tell me about when you met Brenda, a.k.a. Magoo. Tell me about meeting her. We met at Northwestern. She and I were in the same geology class. For lab, the seating was, she's McClure, that's her maiden name, I'm Mallet. So we were split by one person. And um, I'm glad I'm telling the story, not her, because she'd be right now interrupting. Um, but it was, um, we got fixed up by another fraternity brother on a, on a blind date. Well, she knew who I was, but I'm a doofus. I don't pay attention to names or anything else. And I noticed she would look at me and smile that, that, you know, infectious smile she has. And I wouldn't respond at all until I realized, you know, when I went to pick her up, this is the person in the life. And we, we hit it off. She thought, she thought I was too serious in the lab, but you know, uh, we enjoyed each other's company and had some beers and the rest is history. We started a date and uh, then it became serious sophomore or junior year. It was just, just a neat situation. It worked out well. Wow. How long yeah. have you been married? Uh, 53 years. Wow. And yeah. how old are you? 76. Yeah, I'm a geezer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know where I park my car, but I'm a happy guy. You look damn good, Don. Well, I got to tell you. You know, it's as I said. I look back on this thing, and I've had it pretty good. Look, Deb, I've made it to old age. I've made it to old age. I, you know, I'm lucky. I can remember being at Normandy. Uh, the last one was the Belgium and the Netherlands, the Holland trip, World War One. It's just one freaking battlefield, cemetery after another. There's thousands. Yeah. Never made it to old age. I'm lucky. That's the way I see it. And I think that's helped me through some of this. 
kind of the way we started the conversation before actually I started the recorder that we have health care. Oh, yeah. And we have great health care. Oh. And what would we be doing if we didn't have these doctors that we can go to? We'd be waiting and waiting in hopes that whatever this was is going to go away. And when it doesn't go away, and our loved ones and our friends said, you've got to do something about this, we then show up in the emergency room. Yeah. And that's not the way it should work. Yeah. That's wrong. And we have communities of people that support us. That's absolutely huge. Yeah. Yeah, really, really I'm not holed up in some little apartment living on, you know, a, a pension or a social security and frightened um, mm -hmm. and um, absolutely. Listening to Don talk reminds me of the legend of two wolves. And I'll let you Google the origin of that story since it's a little controversial. And I'm going to tell it to you and be very gender inclusive. So there is a grandparent trying to teach their grandchild about life. And the grandparent says, there is a fierce battle going on within me. It is a battle between two wolves. One is evil. And that wolf is anger and envy and resentment and hate and arrogance. And then there is also a good wolf. And the good wolf is love and hope and compassion and generosity and faith and trust. And the grandchild asks, well, which wolf will win? And the grandparent simply replies, the one I feed. So I listen to Don and he's definitely feeding the good wolf. I mean, he could be feeding the evil wolf and saying, this really sucks, I have this terrible diagnosis and I have so much life ahead of me I thought I would get. But instead, he's talking about how he has health care and he has a family and supportive friends and he's grateful for his life and all the things he's managed to experience. And he has nothing but gratitude. And he's feeding the good wolf. I just think that this is such a great attitude to have no matter what's happening in our life, even the small things. You know how it is. You can feed whatever it is you're a little ticked off about. But if we choose to feed the good wolf, then it's a whole different story. It's hard to say to your kids, I'm going to die from this. So let's try to be okay with that. That's the harder work. So. What I want to know, Don, is when you lie in bed at night and you're not asleep, what do you think about that? I mean, what, mm -hmm. yes. what are your beliefs around death? Do you think you go somewhere or what happens? What I think about in bed, I worry about my family, love of my life, Magoo. She's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. But I, I do worry. I'm not afraid of death. I have a lot of people to thank and say goodbye to. And, and, and this is one of the areas, us talking, you know, right now, since they have started this aggressive protocol, I have been able to continue to participate in most of the stuff that was important to me. I'm still involved with the church. I mean, that's very important to me. Those are things that I want to continue to be involved with. And, and yet I find that a lot of people 
will basically say, you don't need to do it, just, you know, or I'm left out, and that upsets me when I'm left out. I said, you know, I'll make that call if it's okay with you. That's an important thing. That's a big issue that people assuming, we know their motivation is good, right? Absolutely. We don't want to, you know, burden Don, but then when you're, you're left out of the equation, you feel like, well, I'm, I'm useless now. I have no value whatsoever. I'm a sick person. I, I you know, I, I have, wouldn't put it like that, but you're exactly right. And, and I'm, I'm not there yet. Don was right. He wasn't there yet. There meaning being too ill to participate in life. But he did have a very close friend named John who was at that stage. This was months ago when I, you know, I was healthy and, and uh, we were out at lunch and John said, wait a minute, I've got a question for you. And I said, well, what is it? He said, we know how my game's going to end. Would you be available at a memorial service to speak as far as my involvement with the church? And I said, maybe, I'm not sure there's much to it, but I'd do it, you know, yucky, yucky. And then once I was diagnosed, we were out at lunch, and I said, John, we got a problem here. And he said, what's that? I said, I don't know who the hell's going to make it the finish line first. (laughs) So for you, if you imagined what you would consider your perfect death, what would that look like? Having time, which I've been blessed with, to reach out to people, to reconnect, to do some of the unfinished business, to do the to do the re, reprioritizing, which I'm doing, not with the discipline that I should. So that's I'm, all the living stuff. I'm going to interrupt you and stuff. say that's the living stuff. Yeah. But I'm talking about the actual exiting out of your body, which is granted harder to talk about. Well, I really haven't given it much thought. I probably should. I think the exiting process will, uh, in, a, in a perfect world, I would like to avoid a lot of discomfort. I would like to avoid a prolonged process that negatively impacts on all of my loved ones. Um, that's about as far as I've gotten, and that's not very damn far. Do you want to die here in your home? You know, right now, Yes, but right now, I don't want a lot of people gathered around. Um, And that brings up some other questions. Do I want my grandchildren to see Papa Don working to try to get that last breath? I'm not sure I do. Here's another perspective that I'll offer you. Do you want your grandchildren to see that death is natural and not scary? And can they watch Papa Don exit gracefully and maybe maybe you'll be i don't know skinny and pale and look like hell but can you show them that you know what really matters is that your heart is still full and that you still can experience joy i mean that's just something to think about absolutely see this shows our cultural attitude toward death i don't want the kids to see me like that but why what is like that what does that mean you know and and why because what's that saying is people that are physically unattractive, we, we want to shut that out. We don't want to see that. It is something to think about. I think you're absolutely right. I want my sons and daughter-in-law's input on, on something like that. It, yes, this is life. This is part of the journey. So you're going to start thinking about, hmm, 
this is going to end for me. And what is that like? What's the next adventure? Or is there another adventure? Or can we just live with that uncertainty and mystery and be okay with that? At least at this point, I'm okay with that. It is a mystery out there. I don't know. But I feel strongly that uh, I'm, you know, it's not going to be over. But I don't know beyond that. I can't define, I don't think I'm going to be hiding behind the cloud looking down or anything like that, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but I, 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 you know, and it's still formulating. Well, I have to say, I'm sitting here looking at you. You're wearing shorts and a polo shirt and you're tan and you look fantastic, like you're about to go play around the golf. Well, I knew you were coming, so I've spent two days. Of course, I cut myself to shaving this morning. I'm so nervous about your arrival. I wondered what that was. I thought oh, maybe you popped a zit. No, no. I'm just an old man. I can't get it straight. <laughs> so here's my final say for today. Besides feeding the good wolf or focusing on gratitude, Don also kept his tremendous sense of humor. I think he took life seriously, but he didn't take himself seriously, and that can really change everything. And I want to give a note of caution here. If you have a friend who is just starting treatment like Don, I wouldn't advise barging in and asking them if they want to die at home and what do they believe happens after you die. There was one point in our conversation where Don said, I'm not there yet. And if I wasn't interviewing him for this podcast, our conversation would have been totally different. It would have been about the present. That is, unless, you know, Don wanted to talk about the future or what he thought about death. You know that advice, be here now? That's really good advice. So if it hadn't been for this podcast interview, I would have just been talking to him about what was happening right now. So the takeaways for this episode, feed the good wolf. Don't lose your sense of humor. Keep your sense of humor. Be here now. Oh, and also, you know, it's it's their life. It, somebody who's facing death, let them make as many decisions as they want. Include people unless they no longer want to be included and just trust that they will tell you. And if you're not sure, you know what? You can ask them. Is this feeling like a burden? Do you want to keep doing this? This is the last episode for season one of The Final Say. Please stay tuned for more episodes in 2023. And I'll be talking with people of different ages and people who are choosing to die by voluntarily stopping eating and drinking or VSED, B-S-E-D, and many more interesting conversations with people facing death. If you have a story or know someone who would like to be on this podcast, head on over to thefinalsaypodcast.com. Click on the contact tab, which is way over on the far right there, and leave me a message. And I would love it if you went to Apple or Spotify or wherever you hear this podcast and leave me a really good review, but an honest review, okay? We got to be honest. 
And as usual, thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for providing the music. You guys rock. So I'm Deborah Jarvis, and thanks for listening to The Final Say, Conversations with People Facing Death.